the weekend variety wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. On the announcement yesterday that Donald Trump, or the day before, whatever, uh, was not going to meet with Kim Jong-un. Throughout the media, almost almost universal, what a lost opportunity, what a terrible thing. I, I rejoiced. I maintain keep well away. What do you think the result would be of a, a, a narcissist uh, meeting with someone who spends his entire life being praised like a god? Uh, the results of such a meeting for two nuclear powers? It's a bit like Marky Smith's funeral. They said a fight broke out. Surprise, surprise. Oh, don't do it. Keep well away. Step away. Step away. Just paddle water and pose at a distance, please, until we can resume normal broadcasting. Okay, uh, James Crute's going to take us through more of the documentary Edge Festival, plus a little heads up on one movie at the International Film Festival. The Dock Edge is running in Auckland at the moment. There are plenty of movies left to see, a week's worth or more. If you would like a double pass to go and see almost anything you like, uh, just give us a bell now, 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747. We'll give away two double passes. Uh, if it's sold out, you can't go to them, okay? That seems fair enough. Okay. 844-0800-844-747. Two double passes to the Documentary Edge Festival. James Crook will take us through some of the showcase events after this commercial break. Good evening. Yeah, and the podcast still aren't fixed. Sorry. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Documentary Edge Festival is the focus. It's full on in Auckland this weekend. Go and check out the schedule. There is some awesome stuff. We've given you heads up uh, to give you a bit of an idea what's inside the packet because the packet's got a label on it and you always every time um you see something you go back to see what's on the label and you think gosh it's much more than that isn't it anyway james hi how are you i'm good thanks graham yes it's great that you guys up in auckland now have got uh, the dock edge definitely encourage people to go out and see it and you know must plug the great spielberg documentary that uh, closes out the festival i think uh, not this weekend but next weekend because that really is amazing as well as their one all about andre leon Talley, which is has been made all the more poignant with the demise of interview magazine of course the uh, one that andy warhol f- founded and uh, andre leon Talley was basically the um front of house office boy uh for for many years there wow all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I've managed to see a few and managed to corner directors and subjects of said documentaries. Um, I do want to talk about murder in Mansfield and actually point of no return 
and When Gold Sleeps. Those are three I've seen this week, and um, two crackers each. Um, I, I threw that out there because I don't have notes from you. That's fine. <laughs> I, I just so so we're not treading on each other's toes. That's what well, I've seen. Well, in terms of in terms of one that that is definitely that a lot of people have been talking about over the last few months and things like that, and that's the rape of Reese Taylor. Right. Uh, now, she was a 24-year-old black American woman who was attacked on her way home from church and raped by six white men. And and um, she, it took, uh, what, 70 years for her to get an apology? Um, and, of course, the, if the name Reese Taylor kind of sounds familiar, Oprah Winfrey mentioned her as part of her Golden Globe speech that kind of went around the world and everybody said, you know, Oprah should be the next president kind of thing. Right. So this this is kind of the backstory, what really happened and just, um, you know, this, uh, of course, the other link to American history in terms of this particular case was the NAACP investigator uh, in her uh, case was a woman by the name of Rosa Parks. Oh, get out. That yeah. Rosa Parks or Rosa, that Rosa, Rosa Parks? The accountant. Yep. Far no, out. No, no. The... <laughs> The one who didn't like sitting at the back of the bus or whatever, or wouldn't give up her seat. Far out. Yeah, yeah. So 11 years before all that took place, she was key in trying to get this poor, this this black American woman who'd been brutalised um, and trying to, you know, get justice for her. And, yeah, justice took 70 years, Graham. What yeah, what, what was the injustice? Um, on, well, she, on... reported, she reported the attack to the police, yep. identified the rapist. Yep. And no one would, you know, the, the case just got buried. And I, I guess Jeez. in terms of America, there's all that great thing called the statute of limitations as well, isn't there? Which uh, oh, yeah. is a convenient way, depending on which state you're in, of uh, making sure that justice never happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, but that's, laws on that have changed uh, for sexual assault and um, also, yeah. yeah, rape and things like that, yeah. And it finally looks like Harvey Weinstein might be coming to... Oh, right, well, yes, yes, yes. All righty. Um, Happy to talk about one of yours, if you like. Oh, yeah, OK. Well, Murder in Mansfield is kind of along uh, a, a similar line in as much it's a, a, p- trying to get personal explanation or justice, uh, mental justice, shall we say, psychological justice. Um, this bloke was 12 years old when his father murdered his mother and he recalls hearing it happen. Uh, he was found to have... Straight after that, he moved into a house with his pregnant mistress. He buried the body under the concrete in the basement. Oh, my word. And it's been 26 years, and I won't give any spoilers away. We've got an interview with the subject, the kid, as he was then. He's a grown man now, of course. Um, kind of what he went through, but also there's this moment. He's in jail and you get to see him questioning his father, pleading, tell me what happened. Because he he just maintains his innocence and, uh, you know, bare-faced lies and things like that. Um, So that's quite a telling piece of footage. It's it's quite a thing. We really kind of lap up those sort of true crime things now, don't we? Whether they're... Whether they're dramatisations or whether they're the documentary side, you know, it's just something that seems to fascinate Kiwis and humans in general, really. Yeah, and also an interesting thing about the footage, they don't shy away. I'm surprised they don't shy away from showing you reasonably clear footage, as clear as they've got, 
of them hauling the body out from under the concrete and Ooh. it's all soaking wet like it's made of golden syrup and uh, and then oh you see her face let's have oh, a good cool. look at that and I recoiled but you yeah. know they wanted to include it so there you now, go now crikey if you want another movie where you might recoil yeah. <laughs> um, rodents of unusual size oh yes this looks fascinating yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is all set in Louisiana, and um, it uh, focuses on a guy called, uh, I think it's Thomas Gonzalez. And, you know, he, obviously, when you've been in Louisiana, you've had things like hurricanes and oil spills. But now, there are these 10 kilogram, 10 kilo swamp rats. That's got to be another species. What is it? It is. It, it is. They, they're South American rodents, yeah. but not capybara. They're, they're called Nutria, apparently, N-U-T-R-I-A. Oh, right. And, um, they, but they breed like rats or mm. rabbits, depending mm -hmm. on that. And, and they have orange teeth. That's the other thing. But they just destroy the coastal wetlands. Um, and, of course, in that area, um, the wetland is kind of important because, you know, it's often the only vegetation or anything of any height uh, stopping hurricanes from just completely devastating oh. nearby towns and stuff. Right. Um, so, yeah, so this is essentially, um, well, I guess it's like a giant rodent shoot as they try to find ways to um, to take out this this population. I don't know whether they, they don't really talk about, uh, you know, any Khaleesi virus kind of things, but I guess the, these things are fairly specific kind of animals and, and there's not that many of them like you know in the world so it's yeah but okay so there's not many of them in the world but they're they're a weed where they're at at the moment right yeah, Is yeah, that yeah it? exactly well i just mean they're not like your common or domestic sort of rabbit thing they have their own genetic makeup okay scary scary yeah um what do they taste like capybara <laughs> <laughs> i'm unsure maybe chicken <laughs> Well, can you eat them? Does it explore that? I don't know. It doesn't really explore that. I mean, rabbit was always one here, wasn't it? That that people didn't really farm them or anything like that. I remember there was one supermarket in Dunedin that sold rabbit pies. Oh, nice. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Where was that? Are they still selling it? It's not the Garden Seat sure. Cafe, is it? That was 20 years ago. That was 20-odd years ago. Mm. Um, I think we exported most of rabbit in those days. Yeah. Um, must just mention the awards that were handed out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Hedge Sorry. Festival as well. I've got them. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Stan, obviously, was the big winner, which in a kind of ironic way is a wee bit strange because, of course, that was a, a documentary that was essentially made for television. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, congratulations, and it is uh, fully deserving in terms of that. That is a fascinating uh, documentary, and, of course, it was, a, you know, it was well-watched when it first came out. And um, Now, this is about Stan Walker, his struggles. It is about Stan Walker. Yeah. Yeah, who, and, and just the illness that he'd kind of... Uh, we hadn't kept it from, from everybody, but, you know, people... the. In the um, nature abhors a vacuum, and gossip mongers abhor a, a vacuum as well. But everybody had their theories on why it was ill, and it essentially turned out to be this genetic um, issue. Wow! Um, that you know that that runs in his family, and so you know he he lost a heck of a lot of weight. He was not a well boy, but he seems to have come out the other side fairly well. Yeah, and it's um, but it, yeah, this is a. It swept the titles too. It's got everything: cinematography, editing. Yeah, four four yeah. awards is pretty uh, phenomenal, really, in terms of uh, yeah. the uh, edge, That's for sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, Born this way, our story. Uh, yeah, that was the best New Zealand short documentary. 
Uh, I haven't seen it. And Kiwi director Jihan Jang, best New Zealand emerging filmmaker for Searching for the Bone People. So there we go. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. Mm, yeah. Uh, Another all... one uh, just worth mentioning, mainly because the band have been here in the past week, is Believer, which is uh, all about uh, Imagine, Imagine Dragons and their front man. Right. Um, and they wanted to uh, create a festival because they're one of these American bands who have a kind of Mormon background, essentially. Oh, yeah. But these guys set up this festival uh, over in the States to try and get the, the church to sort of change its attitudes towards these. Now, what do they call it now? The LGBTQIA oh, plus community. Yeah. yeah. If you want to be inclusive, add the plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a catch-all. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, let's and, say and, people. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. carry on. And, and, and essentially, um, you know, it's all about about you know they have a big fan base within that particular community because yeah. of where they come from. Uh, sorry, well, I talk about the Mormon community there, but you know, it's a matter of balancing not wanting to alienate those guys from not wanting to alienate their other fans. So no, it's court, right. The more between the the base in Utah, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, look, but, um, yep, that's especially if you're a fan of the band, which, uh, judging by the concerts during the past week, many Kiwis are. Mm, so okay. Are they, right. the new, are they the new Osmonds, or as they uh, should be called, the Moorsmans? Uh, they're probably more like, I'm trying to think, the Mumford and Son. Oh, okay. Or Rocky. Right. Or, or a better version of Nickelback, maybe. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> look. Christian rock is a big thing. Isn't yeah, it? you only have to look. The what is it? Hill song, Hill Crest, oh. or whatever it is, out of Hamilton and yeah. the, the across the Tasman. They they uh, often bother the uh, top ten when they release a new album. Not yeah. sure whether it comes as part of the deal on the Sunday service or not. You get a copy of the album, but hey, God, I suspect so because I've, it's really hard to spot a really good Christian band. I'm not kidding you. It's just I don't know. They throw the kitchen sink at the production all the time, as as if they're yeah. selling Jesus short by not using every every effect that they can. <laughs> anyway, we digress. No, um, no, Graham, you had others you wanted to talk. About. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, when God Sleeps, uh, this is on a religious bent. Imagine you're an Iranian uh, and you're right into your music and you're not really into the theocratic, cleric-driven um, uh, organisation that runs the country. Tyranny, shall we say, and you sing yep. about it. You get a big fat fatwa on you. Uh, this guy's been exiled. He's in Germany, but the it's like being a musical Salman Rushdie. But you're on tour all the time. Go out and try it. Not easy. It's um, I, and it doesn't matter what his music's like. Uh, the uh, the Iranian diaspora overseas absolutely adore him, but it's very hard to tell the difference between an adoring fan and someone who's trying to kill you because a lot of people are trying to kill him. There's a bounty on his head. Uh, I think it's 100,000 if you manage to kill the guy. Um, so, yeah, it's a close profile. And in watching it, occasionally I forgot, oh, right, the documentary makers, they are taking all that risk at the same time. Mm. And he finds it hard to, <laughs> unsurprisingly, um, get people to play with him. Oh, we might be blown up, by the way. And the gig's on at eight. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, when God sleeps, that's a good one. Yeah. 
Of course, one that's attracted uh, quite a bit of attention, and I haven't seen it, uh, is the the um, uh, Ben Gurion one. Oh uh, yeah, that caused epilogue. Yeah, that caused a bit of a, a, a ruckus still, because it was about still Israel. An opportunity for some protests tomorrow morning, I believe. On oh, Sunday morning. Okay. Um, but yes, um, it, it, I mean, essentially, just in case listeners have heard, you know, all about this film, which has caused a bit of a ruckus. Um, essentially, it's uh, footage uh, of an interview that David Ben-Gurion, uh, who founded Israel, um, did an interview in 1968. And they and, and obviously they thought it was lost and that kind of thing. And it's screening here to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel. Um, look, I, I think these kind of, um, you know, whatever, whatever your politics, these kind of historical documents uh, are amazing, really. Yeah. And I think... You know, they're, they're worth checking out if you have any kind of interest or on either side of the debate. Yeah. Just, just because, you know, there are so many stories and so many things that we know so little about now, which, which you know, you can sort of see the roots of, of things that are happening in contemporary society. And, you know, I just think it's always fascinating. I mean, this is essentially one interview, so there's not the kind of, uh, not the kind of two sides of the coin thing. Yeah. that some other documentaries have done in recent times where, you know, there's that kind of juxtaposition of things or, you know, this, this isn't about balance. This is about a, a historical document yeah. uh, and, 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 and somebody's point of view. And I think as long as you look at it from that point of view, then it's definitely worth checking out. Why, is, good, that, why is that so freaking hard? People do it yeah. every time they watch for the one millionth time, another documentary on the History Channel about Hitler. Um, well, every time you turn on Fox News or yeah. CNN, well, not least, to a lesser degree CNN, but uh, MSNBC, MSNBC or that kind of thing, you know, you know what you're watching. Yeah, <laughs> oh, this is history. You've made a choice. Yeah, this is interesting history. Ben Gurion was part, a big part of some history that still resonates today. And, as and this we is see in Gaza, twenty years after he founded it, as yeah, well. So yeah. of course, this is this is an op- was an opportunity for reflection. Somebody actually managed, you know, and and actually getting to hear from the horse's mouth as well. Yeah. Um, the good news is, Graham, in terms of the documentary uh, Edge Festival, maybe finishing up in ten days or so. But the documentaries don't end, of course. The New Zealand International Film Festival will be upon us before we know it. Oh, yay. Yeah. And I must just give a heads up about one title that they've already announced, which is called Hedy Lamar Bombshell. Now, people may well have heard of Hedy Lamar. She was uh, essentially the face of Hollywood in the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, grew up in Austria, um, escaped uh, to London initially, then met Louis B. Mayer, who signed her up, as, as apparently he did a whole lot of uh, fleeing Europeans uh, at cut rates to his own ends. I guess he was kind of the Oscar Schindler of Hollywood in a lot of ways. Oh, okay. Businessman who saw an opportunity. But anyway, the amazing thing about Hedy Lamar was she was this incredible inventor. And she, as this documentary shows, as well as being a movie star, she came up with this invention that essentially... Without it, we wouldn't have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or all those kind of things. And she never got the kudos or the money that she deserved from it. Far out. All right. Oh, we'll keep you in touch with the International Film Festival when it comes along, but that's a tremendous early heads up. 
Thank you very much, James Crute. And we'll talk no again next week. Max Christ joining at the leash, answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Coming up next. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Words Here he is, Max Cryer, uh, for another edition of Words, Their Origin and Meaning. Do you want the pen again, Max? No, no, I wondered where you put the cue sheet. I've got it here. Oh, good. <laughs> um, survived Saturday night. Well done with yes. the commentary of the wedding of Meghan and Markle. Yes, it was faultless, wasn't it? It was just superb. I thought the, the black man spoke too long, but apart from that, it's still... All right, yeah. Well, there's this. it's all fresh and lovely and sunshine and all about the the the, the wedding couple. And the support of the crowds was the, most Marvellous. And then they get in the church and suddenly there's this brutal lurch towards the Bible. And it's, <laughs> it, it's, it really is quite a contrast. Well, that is actually what churches are for. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of like their home territory, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's a home game for them. Mm. All right, um, that's wonderful commentary uh, from Max Cryer and in little letters beside it myself is available online on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Oh. And you can also go there and use the email form to ask Max a question about words, their origin and meaning. I pass them on and Max gets his nose into the books. But our word of the week this week, I suspect, comes from uh, the royal ascent, is it? Yes. Um, that Harry is no longer just Prince Harry, he's the Duke of Cornwall, or Duke, isn't he? Yes, but that's not an ascent because Prince is higher. Oh. Oh, okay. But he's actually now... He's been, he's been given Sussex as Duke a wedding present. Yes, he's Duke of Sussex. Mm. I thought we'd look at that word Sussex. It's an odd word. Um, it's a part of southern England which used to be a kingdom of its own. And the name comes from one of your favourite races of people, Graham. Because the area was named 477 AD. It was called Sussex. And it meant the land and the people of the South Saxons. Right. And then you compare it with Essex, which was East Saxon people, Middlesex and Wessex, as in middle of, uh, you know, the territory of England mm -hmm. in the middle and the Wessex. Now, the title Duke of Sussex was created in 1801 by King George III. He's had a son, Prince Augustus Frederick, born in 1773. He was the sixth son and ninth child of King George III and Queen Charlotte. Oh, so this is a bit of a consolation plate. <laughs> he was the first to hold the title Duke of Sussex. The prince led a somewhat rebellious life. He broke with royal tradition when he secretly married Lady Augusta Murray in 1793 without the consent of his father, Good King God. George, which was never done. And the royal family refused to recognise the marriage, though, curiously, he later became a favourite of Queen Victoria, who was notoriously straight-laced. But it was actually he, it was actually the Duke, who took her down the aisle when she got married to Prince Albert. Steady on. Now, Prince Augustus, Duke of Sussex, died in London in 1843, and the title, Duke of Sussex, expired with him until the other day when Queen Elizabeth II revived it, especially for her grandson, Harry. She found it behind the coffee machine, didn't I don't she? Know oh, I had no idea. Oh, Sussex, it's there's the thing. We haven't used that in ages. never been revealed where she found it, but somebody told her it had been out of action for many, many years, and she is the only person in the world who has the right to renew it. Right. So she said, right, 
wedding present for Harry, he becomes Duke of Sussex. And people of Sussex are delighted about it. They are, aren't they? Yes. They feel really, really quite special. Yes. Um, yeah, I do have uh, a, a penchant for the Anglo-Saxons. Not because they're a favourite people. It's, it's, through, it's a feeling of compensation that because nobody does talk about them. No. They get left out completely. Now, when I started on this, the word Sussex, I was quite pleased that the Saxons came into it mm. because it means South Saxon. Very good. Okay, and the House of Wessex ended up being the kings and queens of England. Oh, yes. Well, the, there was a king of Sussex as well, mm. uh, but that didn't last very long. No, and Wessex basically got rid of the Danes and then got rid of the northern part as well, it took over the whole thing. So it's the, the line of Wessex that ended up being all of England. You'd wonder how they managed without radio, wouldn't you? You would, mm. yeah. Or telephones. Or rabbits. I don't think they had rabbits until, no rabbits? until the t 1066, apparently. Oh. I find that hard to believe. All right. Um, Larry, why does someone use the phrase, use the word Larry in the phrase... Happy as Larry. Well, it's a very amiable expression, and although it appears to have been seen in print in New Zealand before it was seen in Australia, it's um, quite firmly regarded as being of Australian origin. But what the origin is, is not 100% clear. One of the most um, believed beliefs, if you, can, if you can follow that, one of the most believed beliefs, theories, is that it refers to the Australian boxer Larry Foley, who died in 1917. Now, Foley was a successful boxer, though in the years he boxed, boxing wasn't actually legalised. He never lost a fight. He retired at 32 with a purse said to be over £1,000 for his final fight. So we can expect that he was known to be happy with his lot, which is when the expression happy as Larry arose in the 1870s. But there is an alternative belief that the expression relates to early Cornish and the later Australian word larrikin. Oh. oh meaning a rough type or hooligan that is predisposed to larking about. Larrikin is a term which would probably Meredith would have known. It was appearing in print in Australia and New Zealand starting in 1868 onwards. I don't find the connection very convincing because whatever source you read and whatever different explanations, there isn't, that I could see, anything connecting unauthorised, loudmouth, disturbing larrikinism to have any relation to being happy mm. or the highly skillful and announced occasions such as boxing matches are. But wherever it comes from and whatever it refers to, it certainly was first brought forward in New Zealand. Writer Justin Brown's wonderful little book called Kiwi Speak quotes the first time the expression was ever seen in print anywhere, and that was in New Zealand in 1875. And in print it said, we would be as happy as Larry if it were not for the rats. Oh, heavens, Somebody rats writing, even then. What, mm. even, what, 1875? Rats have been around longer than that. Yeah, I know, but as uh, recognised as quite a pest. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. All right, happy as Larry. There's also the fact uh, that it trips off the tongue quite nicely. Exactly. Rhythm. Yeah. It's usually rhythm that keeps these things going. You wouldn't say happy as Archibald. Not so easily. No. Happy as Larry just feels right. Okay. Um, somebody asked about the oldest profession. 
Well, I happen to know that the listener who sent this question in knows as much about the English language as I do, so I'm on my best behaviour. Why is prostitution often referred to as the oldest profession? Now, the listener points out that the dictionary defines profession as, quote, an occupation requiring special training in the liberal arts or sciences, especially one of the three learned professions, law, theology and medicine. Well, I think we could agree that's a fairly reasonable picture of how the word is usually used, but the listener wonders if prostitution could maybe come under the category of liberal arts. And she found a further qualification for valid use of the word profession, namely, quote, profession means engaging in activity for gain or as a means of livelihood. Now, all that seems this... To is, the bill. <laughs> well, up to a point, if you'll pardon the expression. Now... All this arose from seeing George Bernard Shaw's play, which is currently on in Auckland, Mrs. Warren's Profession. The play was written in 1890, but was banned from production until 1903 because the scandalous act that it was based on referred to prostitution, public mention of which was unthinkable in 19th century England, and even well into the next century and into the 21st century. Not until 2009, the British Policing and Crime Act made working as a prostitute in a private a non-offence. And from then on, nor was it illegal for prostitutes to sell sex at a brothel. Street prostitution, however, remained illegal. So the question remains, why did Bernard Shaw use such an acid expression, referring to it as a profession? Well, the word profession didn't always mean doctors and lawyers. As early as the 1600s, references were being made about farmers, engineers, gardeners, the military, nurses and teachers as being part of old professions, which is perfectly true. But things took a turn for the worse in 1889 when the famous author Rudyard Kipling wrote a story about an Indian girl who was a prostitute. But curiously, Kipling presented the case that in India, some levels of prostitution involved several generations of family women and was more or less accepted as an income earner. So when Kipling wrote the words oldest profession, he didn't actually mean it to be a negative reaction. But a few years later, the Kipling phrase was used in a scathing newspaper article referring to the activities of some London women in Piccadilly and Regent Street who, quote, followed what has been called the oldest profession in the world. That was the term that Kipling had used. Now, the fame of Rudyard Kipling and the wide readership of that newspaper more or less sealed the expression, the world's oldest profession, into London parlance. It filtered to Bernard Shaw, and we still understand it here in New Zealand. If anyone says it, they mean prostitution. Right. So Kipling, he was kind of the originator of this. Yes, but he didn't mean it as an insult. No, or, no, no. It was taken up by a newspaper who who found the behaviour of some women on the streets in London offensive. Mm. They quoted Kipling, and people's minds put the two things together. Yeah. Well, there's actually nothing pejorative in saying world's oldest profession or, at all in there anyway. Well, I was surprised but rather pleased to discover that the phrase had been used in the 1600s referring to mm. farmers and, and school teachers yeah, and why not? nurses. Exactly. Uh, this is what you make your money at, I suppose. Uh, OK. We'll take a break and when we return we'll be answering more of your questions about the English language, words, their origin and meaning with Max Cryer, Living Legend. 
the weekend variety wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Hello again, Max is here. Uh, and a special hello if you're listening on the podcast downloaded. Oh, a few troubles with the podcast last week. Go to the Facebook page for updates on that. Uh, if anything ever goes wrong with the podcasts, I'll um, I'll be informed. And Facebook is the easiest way for me to tell you because we're only on the air on the weekends. Max Cryer, uh, answering your questions about words, their origin and meaning. If you want to write a regular old letter, feel free. P.O. Box 8880. Simon Street, Auckland. That's S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. Simon Street, Auckland. Uh, and Max will get it. Someone has asked, kill and cull. What is the difference? Well, the listener asked if the words kill and cull derive from the same roots. And did one of them become a more genteel word to basically mean the other? Like, are people using the word cull when they actually mean kill? Like when people use the word conversation instead of argument. Well, um, the answer to that question, to his question, is no. If the words are used correctly, they don't mean the same thing. Starting with kill, the English word kill has a very clear meaning, but the ancestry is complex. It was in very old English as quellen, to murder or execute, which ultimately gave us the word quell, and connected it, that old English word was connected with the Norwegian word kila, to pole, thus dirch, to knock down, an Icelandic kol, to top. They all they were influenced by Middle Dutch killen, to kill. And all of that jigsaw c fell together eventually in England uh, to mean no mucking about, just kill. It has a long relationship with various sources and they all mean the same thing, pain unto death. Now, cull, C-U-L-L, -L, is quite different. It started out in Latin as collegio, to gather together, Moving into French, that being couille, to collect and select. And then the move into English, cull, modified the spelling but retained most of the meaning. Because the proper meaning of all those is to pick or take someone or something from a larger group. And the situation the listener is referring to when the word cull is being used correctly, it does not necessarily mean everyone gets killed. It probably means that some animals are selected from a group and then for a particular reason, those selected animals are killed, or the culled animals may be the wanted ones, so the unselected animals killed. Either way, there has been a selection. That's what cull means when referring to animals. Mm. Now, cull means to select animals from a group and kill the others in order to reduce the numbers, or vice versa, or perhaps move them to somewhere else for a different purpose. It is not a euphemism for killing. It doesn't happen just to farm animals. In a business situation, a big firm, for instance, you might hear, we're having to have a cull in the personnel department, meaning there's a staff downsize coming up and some people will be fired. But remember, cull, when used correctly, means to reduce the size of a group by specifying that which you wish to retain and sending the others away by whatever means. Man, when it comes to firing people or, or culling staff, they don't usually use cull these days. There's so much energy put into finding euphemisms for that sort of Downsizing. thing. Downsizing. Downsizing, oh, rectify, uh, human resource What's that correction. New, what's that new one that starts with out? Outplacing. Outsourcing. Out what? Outsourcing? Outsour no, outsourcing means coming in. Yeah, I know. But out outplacing means that you've lost the job and have to go somewhere else. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes, that's quite oh, new. Oh, outplacing. 
All righty. Uh, what is a portmanteau word? These are fun. A portmanteau portmanteau word is actually a portmanteau itself because more port plus manteau means carrying a cloak. Now, the listener's interest was roused by seeing words like neo-postmodernism, which is a mix of Greek and Latin, and he asks, are there any hard and fast rules about mixing Greek origin words with Latin origin words? Well, the short answer is no. There aren't any rules that I know of. They're called portmanteau words in formal description, but in informal terms, they could be called hybrid words. But the mixing of the two usually has some attitude behind it, such as ease of understanding and pronouncing. We have, in fact, hundreds or probably thousands of words in English which are descended from Greek or from Latin. And several hundred of those are portmanteau words using both languages, bits of both languages. Automobile is half Greek, half Latin. Ah. Yes. Um, claustrum confined and Greek phobos meaning fear gives us claustrophobia. Bis plus Greek gamlos, wedding, gives us bigamy. Greek monos, meaning one, plus Latin lingua, language, gives you monolingual. DYS, dis, meaning bad, plus Latin functio, gives us dysfunction. And here's a good one. The Greek tele, meaning far away, plus the Latin visio, means seeing from a far distance and gives us the word television. Hmm. Your car has a speedometer, which is a strange mixture of French, German and Greek. And if you say a child is hyperactive, you're using a portmanteau word of three languages. Hyper from Greek, over and active, which was French by way of ancient Greek. So... Um, the short answer is it happens all the time, and it has done for many, many years. Sometimes to foreign, sometimes no foreign language is required. For instance, there's quite a few in English. Brunch combines breakfast and lunch without reaching very far. Smog is a combination of smoke and fog. Britain to France is accessed by a channel, which is a tunnel under a channel, a channel under a, a tunnel under a channel, and uh, motor and hotel make motel. Now, sometimes not actually a portmanteau word, but a brief common expression uses two languages. Par is from Latin meaning equal status, and course comes from the old French meaning moving through a particular path. Hence, par for the course means what is expected as the usual or the possible in a situation. Now, the listener writes of the possibility of his creating a portmanteau word himself, and he refers to this possible word as a neologism, thus using a neologism, since the word neologism is also a portmanteau word, neo, describing from the French use of the Greek word for new, plus logos, which is Greek for word. So you have new word. Now, the answer to his question is, there is no reason why someone shouldn't create a new portmanteau word, but I would gently suggest that some care is taken in how it sounds when yes. it's said. Yeah. Do you agree? Oh, yes. It has to be something that falls into the brain and mm. out on the lips quite easily. His letter suggested that perhaps the situation of somebody holding an isolated opinion, which few other people hold, could be called an insuldox. Latin insula, meaning island, and docks, greet for opinion, an isolated opinion. Well, there's no real rule, so an isolated opinion being referred to as an isola docks is grammatically not incorrect, but 
one has to keep on keep an eye on language acceptability and whether the word has the right rhythm yeah if the word has a good rhythm for people to be comfortable using it then it'll probably work but that's the only rule i can think of re neologism that they're easy to say yeah um because no one makes the rules if you ask is there a hard and fast rule about something one must think then or where is this committee that makes the rules? And there isn't one. They have one in France, but they well, there but is, we don't. New English. There are separate occasions. There are separate occasions, though. Say in applying for a job. I mean, there are uh, committees making rules for in, in isolated pockets. If you have to write something a certain way, like a medical report. Oh right. But, yeah. Um, but no, in general conversation, if you want to make up a neologism, go right ahead and do it. Yeah. But make sure. And specialist it, lingo. Make sure, sure it flows. Mm. Now. Oh, just a, a, one which is just so unlikely, um, an acronym. Ah. They usually only work if they have rhythm yes. and mm. it's kind of catchy. FPOS. FPOS. We've all accepted FPOS. Yes. Electronic Funds Fun. Transfer at Point of Sale, I think. E-F-T-P-O-S. How and it's amazing that, that, is, that is just so accepted now yes, because it started off with a hell of a handicap. Because we do others, we do ANZAC, and we speak of the yeah. AA quite easily, and those yeah. are all initials. Yeah, I want to remind everyone that 169 years ago on this day, May the 26th in 1849, let us let us say. Um, hurrah for the people of Dunedin because the people of Dunedin stood on their hind legs and informed the British government to forget any thoughts of proposing New Zealand to be a penal colony. The meeting was public, the vote was unanimous and the text of the vote was written by the Reverend Thomas Burns, nephew of the famous poet Robert Burns. The vote said, a young colony is the very last which could venture to receive any portion of such persons. Well, good heavens, really, we stood up and said no. Absolutely. Far out. Probably helped out Australia doing that, didn't they? <laughs> I think Australia was getting full. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder who the first person to discover Melbourne was. Dawn Fraser in 1956, I think, I in the Olympics. Went Mel over the hill and thought, oh, bloody hell, look at that. There's a city down there. I think probably Lord Melbourne may have been a little earlier than Dawn oh, Fraser. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Max, thank you very, very much. Uh, ask Max a question about the English language words, their origin and meaning. Uh, you can do it on the email form or on the Facebook page, on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. All those are accessible there. Uh, between 11 o'clock and 12, I think, anyway, a really, really charming thing from Neil Young. However, he wasn't very happy with it. I don't what's wrong with you, Neil. It sounds utterly gorgeous to me. Uh, the album Comes a Time, and there are some classics on there, including uh, a Canadian tune he chose to cover, which I think Canada had, this, had a vote for what is the greatest Canadian song of all time. And I think this might have come in second or third. Four Strong Winds. Doesn't really beautiful the it? image of Canada though, does it? No, no, it's surprising. Well, their national anthem oh, is yes. "Oh Canada, we stand on guard for thee," yeah. which I find Canadians are a little bit reluctant. It, it needs it, it, they had to change it from sons to people like it used to be. Oh. So it's same with Australia. Yeah, Australia's national anthem used to be Australia's sons, oh. and it was changed to Australians all. Oh. Fair enough. Okay, here's Neil doing his one of his national songs. Very proud of it too, as a Canadian.
think I'll go out to Alberta Weather's good there in the fall I got some friends that I could go to work in for Still I wish you'd change your mind If I ask you Grant Smithies and myself replay almost the whole album. Comes a time. Neil Young. Lovely thing. It's 10 o'clock. News time.